This episode is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audiobook download by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from NPR, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The Onion Radio News, The Black Martini Club Oddcast, The Progressive Magazine, The Colbert Report, Countdown, and The Daily Show. As the debate over health care rages, commentator Brian Unger says the back and forth is getting toxic. It's revealing a lot about us as a nation and not the good stuff. It feels embarrassing, like the whole world can see our underpants or hear us fighting in the kitchen. First, most of us can't describe accurately the details of the health care reform now under debate. That makes us look stupid or too busy to care. Second, most of us can't describe accurately the health care or insurance we currently have, so that makes us look kind of stupid, too, or lazy. Some of us don't care about people who don't have health insurance, so that makes us seem unsympathetic or super lucky. Most of us don't understand that we're already paying for people who don't have health care, which makes us too busy to care, in denial, or merely rich. Some of us a lot of us already receive health care under some form of government plan, but don't believe in health care under some form of government plan. That makes us hypocritical or selfish. In some camps, I hear that makes us patriotic. We're having an identity crisis when it comes to caring about the nation's health, which makes me think what we really need is psychotherapy. But sadly, that's not covered under most health plans, if you have one at all. To many, health care reform is scary, like someone's building a halfway house for criminals right at their doorstep. It's a NIMBY, a not-in-my-backyard issue, evolved into a NIMBO, a not-on-my-back Obama issue. People never change, but policy can, so our health care reformers must get more creative and visionary. How about a cash-for-clunkers program? Not for cars, but for older, beat-up people whose bodies have wear and tear and can't go long distances when they're filled with gas. Our government is offering us $4,500 to buy a new car. Can it offer humans incentives, a tax break to join a gym, to quit smoking, or to buy produce from local farmers, reward schools that teach kids how to eat right and exercise? You know, kind of like that class we used to offer kids called gym. Let's pay people to stay healthy instead of only paying for them when they get sick. Then maybe our nation will find the antidote for its health care identity crisis. Compassion. I don't mind. I don't care. As long as you're here. You'd never know it by the headlines, but Democrats have giant majorities in both houses of Congress. Seeking to remind Democrats of that and to recapture some of the political mojo that made those majorities happen, President Obama has brought back on board David Pluff, the campaign manager who orchestrated his big victory, low those long 14 months ago. On the same day the White House leaked the news of Pluff's return, the Washington Post published an op-ed with Pluff's marching orders for Democrats. Item number one, pass health reform now. Quote, it's a good plan that's become a demonized caricature, politically speaking. If we do not pass it, the GOP will continue attacking the plan as if we did anyway. And voters will have no ability to measure its upside. If we do pass it, dozens of protections and benefits will take effect this year. Only if the plan becomes law will the American people see all the scary things Sarah Palin and others have predicted, such as the so-called death panels, were baseless. We own the bill and the health care votes. We need to get some of the upside. So in short... Pass health care, Democrats. Duh. What's the alternative? Work all year for it, promise it, campaign for it, get both houses of Congress to vote for it, then don't do it? 
Some Democrats apparently think so. You can recognize them because they're the ones who have spent the last week in the fetal position because their supermajority in the Senate was reduced to merely an awesomely large majority thanks to the Massachusetts special election. If Democrats do, in fact, decide that they have the will to live, they will take David Pluff's advice and pass health reform now. They've got two options to do so. They can either pass the Senate bill through the House with fixes to the bill passed afterwards by reconciliation. Reconciliation means it'll take 50 votes, not 60. Or they can pass the fixes first with those 50 Senate votes and then pass the Senate bill through the House afterwards. That's the choice. Either way, they can either have chocolate with their peanut butter or peanut butter with their chocolate. But either way, that's what they've got to do. They can either do that or quit. Those are their choices at this point. Times reported on January 26th that the White House and congressional Democrats will be deciding whether to use what the Times called a procedural maneuver to avoid a Republican filibuster and pass a health care bill by majority rule. The process is known as budget reconciliation, and the Times warned that it, quote, carries numerous risks, including the possibility of a political backlash against what Republicans would be sure to cast as parliamentary trickery, close quote. Yes, the Republicans are sure to frame it that way, and more importantly, corporate media are sure to amplify that framing, as reporters David Hershenhorn and Robert Pear went on to do in the same article, relaying Republican complaints about hardball tactics in pursuit of job-killing policies. Further on in the article, though, you find this passage, quote, the mere mention of reconciliation infuriates many Republicans, even though they occasionally used the tactic when they were in the majority, close quote. Yes, that's right. They occasionally used hardball tactics and parliamentary trickery when they were in the majority. Shouldn't that hypocrisy have been noted when the Times first conveyed the GOP spin, rather than leaving it as a footnote? But the Times' Robert Pear seems to like reporting on reconciliation as a strange, scary thing before acknowledging that it's actually pretty routine. A Pear piece from April 23rd last year described the process as obscure, high risk, and an exercise in political muscle, before noting that it's been used 19 times since 1980 to pass some of the most significant and conservative legislation of the past 30 years. Funny how when it might be used to pass something called health care reform, it becomes something to worry about. Partisanship can't be that I agree to all the things that they believe in or want, and they agree to none of the things I believe in and want, and that's the price of bipartisanship, right? But, but that's sometimes the way it gets presented. Mitch McConnell said something very nice uh, in the meeting about how he supports our goals on nuclear energy and clean coal technology and more drilling. Uh, to increase oil production. Well, of course he likes that. That's part of the, the Republican agenda for energy, which I accept. And I'm willing to move off 
some of the preferences of my party in order to meet them halfway. But there's got to be some give from their side as well. That's true on health care. That's true on energy. That's true on financial reform. That's what I'm hoping gets accomplished at the summit. All right. Perfect example of that is health care. Do you know that health care adopted six of the major planks of the Republican Party for health care reform? It's in the bill already. Here, I'll, I'll list them for you. This is straight out of the GOP's Solutions for America website. Number one is let families and businesses buy health insurance across state lines. Check. That's in the bill. Number two, allow individuals, small businesses, and trade associations to pool together and acquire health insurance at lower prices the same way large corporations and labor unions do. Check. It's in the bill. Number three, uh, give states the tool to create their own innovative reforms that lower health care costs. Check. It's in the bill. Number four, end junk lawsuits. Now, you can argue about that one as to what you mean by junk lawsuits and is it tough enough. But yes, that's also in the bill. Okay. Then uh, there's two others that Ezra Klein's mentions that are not in the Solutions for America verbatim, but that are part of the Republican plank. The most famous one is the killing the public option. No Medicare buy-in, no public option, no single-payer, nothing. That was the number one request by the Republicans. Check. It's not in the bill. Okay? And then finally, um, one more is uh, placing a cap on tax breaks for employer-sponsored insurance. Also in the bill. Okay. So they got six enormously important proposals that were Republican proposals as part of the health care uh, reform. How many votes did they get for their uh, efforts? None. Zero. How many times are we going to go through this? How, may, how much can you get, give them and get nothing in return? It doesn't make any sense. See, what you need to do is take these articles, and there's several. There's uh, one by Ezra Klein of the Washington Post. There's one by Igor Volsky uh, that points this out. There's one by Jason Lincolns in Huffington Post. And they all say the same thing. We already gave you the queen. Okay? So now publicize that and have Obama say, I can't go any more than this. So if they don't sign on, that means they just want to kill the bill. Kathleen Sebelius uh, makes a very similar point. Now, it's a point I don't like, but listen, listen to this for a different reason. She says, quote, if you remember, for a long time the discussion was, well, we don't want to participate in anything that has a public option in. Well, as far as I've determined, the public option is no longer part of the plan, and yet no one has come back to the table and said, well, we'll now talk about how to move forward with a private market strategy. She's right. She's the head of Health and Human Services, and she gave the Republicans exactly what they wanted, and they still gave her nothing. This isn't bipartisanship. There's a robbery, okay? Highway robbery. They made you do all that they want, and they punished you anyway. Well, look, you'd have to be a sucker to keep going down this road. So let's hope that Obama has finally realized this doesn't make sense. Now, on February 25th, he's going to go and seek more bipartisanship. But the key question is, is that a, a way of saying, look, I, gave, I went all the way. I went the distance. And these guys didn't play ball, so now here comes the stick. If that's a strategy, I'm 100% on board. If he really means it, and he goes out there and he begs them even more, and then is frozen in, in action, like, oh, I gave them six of the top things they wanted in healthcare. Should I give them seven or eight or 16? Well, then, obviously, that's a strategy that isn't going to work. How do I know? It didn't work last year. It's not going to work next year. And they're never going to give you the votes if you ask them nicely. You tell me that you love me so. You tell me that you but when I need you, baby, baby you're never there. Secondhand smoke is linked to secondhand coolness. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. 
According to a tobacco industry study, secondhand cigarette smoke is a leading cause of secondhand coolness. As a result of the study, cigarette companies are encouraging non-smokers to frequent smoky bars and make friends with smokers. R.J. Reynolds spokesperson Ron Gronfeld. When exposed to smokers, even the nerdiest non-smoker becomes a marginally hip, free-thinking individual. Leading cigarette companies now plan to petition the government to encourage smoking among newborns. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio. It makes you feel all Ladies and gentlemen, I know that there are some of you out there, both on the right and the left, the anarchist and the libertarian, who do not like government. And I understand how you feel. You know, sometimes government seems like it's always corrupt, that it's always inefficient, that it's not as good as private markets, that, you know, uh, philosophically they're taking money from you without your choice at the point of a gun to do with it whatever they want to do, and maybe you don't agree with what they do, or maybe you think you do agree with what they do, but you don't like the way they do it. Let me tell you why government is actually a good thing. You know, it's not the politicians, they're the face, and they're not that great, but it's the people that work behind the scenes, the boring bureaucrats, the people that try to figure out how things should work to best, you know, use your money and get the results we want. Because I think we've all seen in this whole disaster with Haiti the importance of building codes and of infrastructure. You know, <clears throat> the, earth, the earthquake that happened in, uh, what is 87 in San Francisco that was the same size earthquake as the one in Haiti only killed uh, like 93 people as opposed to the 50,000 that I heard at last count uh, that they think may, you know, turn out to be 200,000 at the worst. What's the difference? The difference is building codes. The fact that over here, you've got to jump through all kinds of hassles to put up a building. You've got to do it the right way. You have to have people inspect the electricity and the way it's built and the materials used and how it's all put together. And it's a lot of people that you have to pay off and a lot of experts you have to come in. And it's a real hassle. And it's a lot more expensive than it is if it, you know they didn't have all that stuff. But when they have an earthquake, especially when you have an earthquake somewhere where they're expecting earthquakes to happen, like in California, all the buildings don't fall down. That's the purpose of government. It's Government at its heart is us working together to try to make things the way we would like them to be because we can work smarter and better as a collective. You know, I don't think the private sector is going to go and put rebar and use the better concrete because it's more expensive just because they don't want their building to fall down because they, you know, they can buy insurance, right? I mean, if you're just going with the bottom line, rebar is uh, not good for you. And if you want to look at how things used to be here before the government put in all those building codes, look at the, the previous earthquakes. The further back you go, the more devastating they are because people built up without the building codes. The other thing I want to talk about uh, about Haiti, which is just a tangential point to this, about the building codes and all that, is I heard somebody actually say this uh, recently. A Republican, not surprisingly, was saying that, you know, if only the Haitians had spent more money up front on concrete, for example, they could have saved, you know, 200,000 lives. Which struck me as really odd, because here in America... We're not willing to pay extra money to save, you know, we waste about 45,000 lives every year with not having health insurance. So in five years, it would equal one Haitian disaster worst case scenario. But I guess it's okay to say people should spend the money up front to save lives when you're talking about it's not your life or your money or your concrete. Because when it is your life and our money and your health care instead of concrete, 
apparently um, our lives aren't worth that much. So um, we, we don't have the money for that. But we do think that, that Haiti should spend their money on it. I would really like if somebody could explain that one to me. was a little tougher on the Republicans. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, he went from 1 to 2, whereas on a daily basis, I'm at about a 9, right? So, but hey, it was nice. That's like doubling his intensity, right? Uh, and we got a little example of that here. Let's go to clip number 2 and, and show you what he said in the beginning. When it came to health insurance reform in particular, I sought out and supported Republican ideas from the start. So did you. Max Baucus, where's Max? I think he can testify to spending a little time listening to Republican ideas. So can Chris Dodd and Tom Harkin. You considered hundreds of Republican amendments and incorporated many of their ideas into the legislation that passed the Senate. So when I start hearing that we should accept Republican ideas, let's be clear, we have. What hasn't happened is the other side accepting our ideas. And I told them, I want to work together when we can, and I meant it. I believe that's the best way to get things done for the American people. But uh, I also made it clear that we'll call them out when, uh, when they say they want to work with us, and we extend a hand and get a fist in return. Last week, for example, you put up for a vote a bill I supported. Conrad, Greg, Fiscal Commission. We were assured this was going to be bipartisan, only to see seven Republicans who co-sponsored the idea in the first place suddenly decide to vote against it. Now, I'm open to honest differences of opinion, but what I'm not open to is changing positions solely because it's good short-term politics. Oh, man, Obama's ripping him. Yeah, but there was a good line in there. And, and overall, hey, like I said, I'm, I'm happy that he's getting a little tougher. He said, we have led, we extended a hand and uh, get a fist in return. Actually, that's very similar to what he said about uh, Islamic fundamentalism, if you remember, in the beginning of his administration. I think it was in his um, inaugural speech. Uh, inauguration speech when he said, look, we're extending a hand, but we can't get a fist in return. So when the Republicans catch on to that, they're going to be livid. <laughs> okay. So now, uh, having said that, it, that's exactly right, of course. Now, you see, this is very important because Obama right now is caught in this contradiction, and there are so many press reports uh, that talk about what any time that Obama gets tough, they say, oh, well, he said he was going to be bipartisan and he was going to change the tone of Washington. He's not changing the tone. He's attacking the Republicans. No, 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 don't do it. Please, please, please don't attack the Republicans. Now, on the other hand, if he doesn't attack the Republicans, he's going to catch 22. They say, what happened? You, you, I thought you were going to bring us change, and you won't bring the change down, because if you don't challenge the Republicans, they just keep blocking every single bill, and you don't get anything done. So he's in a no-win situation. He's in a lose-lose, right? Now, I think he can turn that into a win-win, and I think he's on the road to doing that with his statement uh, today. Look, here's what you say. Here are the things that I've offered, right? And they have a certain amount of time to accept these, right? And if they don't, for example, in healthcare reform, that time has already run out. We, these are the things that I uh, agreed to on the Republican side, okay? One, two, three, four. Obama could name you 20 things that he agreed to on the Republican side. Here are the concessions that we made. Here are the uh, new offers that we have. Now, if you accept those, great. Then we have bipartisanship. And I brought a new uh, tone to Washington, and everything's great. Now, 
if I give you all those concessions or I make you all these offers and you still don't take it, then what I have to do is kick your ass. Now, that's the critical part of it, right? Because you, if you just go to asking, they say, oh, well, you're not changing the tone. And if you just do the concessions, then they say, well, you're not really getting any change and you're not getting any votes. So he's got to do carrot and stick and turn that lose-lose into a win-win. So he says, all right, look, I offered these. They did not accept them. They gave me zero votes. So now it's time to kick their ass. In fact, it's time to name names and make them famous. <laughs> That's what John McCain said in his campaign that he would do with corrupt members uh, of Congress, right, and the ones that wanted the pork barrel budget. So he's got to say, look, uh, Chuck Grassley offered this in health care reform. I accepted that. And uh, now he still voted against it, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go on a campaign against Chuck Grassley in Iowa, and I'm going to tell uh, the pe good people of Iowa why Chuck, Chuck Grassley screwed you why he denied you health care, why he, if you have a pre-existing condition, the reason you're not getting insurance is because of Chuck Grassley. If you or a family member is sick and you then have the insurance company deny you coverage through what they call rescission, we couldn't fix that. You know why? Because of Chuck Grassley. If you're paying higher premiums next year because we couldn't get reform, you know why that is? It's because of Chuck Grassley. Okay? And you run those ads and you run those ads and you show the sick people in the hospital. Here's a person who's not getting their health care paid for, who has cancer. Why? Chuck Grassley. Chuck Grassley's killing her. He's killing her. Because, look, if they don't get the insurance, that's not theoretical. It happens all across the country. You all know it. If, if you don't get insurance coverage, you can't afford the treatment. And it doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to a lot of people. That is what rescission is. And when they had him in front of Congress, the insurance executive said, hell no. Unless you do the reform and make us legally do it, we're not going to stop rescission. So those people die when they don't get the coverage. And whose fault is it? Say it with me. Chuck Grassley's. Carrots and sticks. Turn your lose-lose into a win-win. Now, he took a small step in that direction today. I applaud that. Let's take a lot more steps in that direction. Audible supports this program, and it's a great fit because I've used them for years. As a member of Generation Y and an avid consumer of audio, I've all but lost the ability to read, so I depend on Audible for nearly all of my pleasure reading via their huge selection of audiobooks, periodicals, and so much more. For listeners of Best of the Left, they are offering a free audiobook download of your choice. Simply visit audiblepodcast.com best. You may have heard similar promotions discussed on other podcasts, so make no mistake, this is a popularity contest. Forsake the other programs you like and support this tiny, independently produced show by using my special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, folks, there's another mad dictator out there trying to destroy America, Barack Obama. <laughs> His health care bill is the largest single government program since President Taft. <laughs> and even after Scott Brown drove his Liberty truck over it, President Obama refuses to let health care die. The Obama administration is scrambling to finalize plans for a health care summit on February 25th. We know the president plans to invite members of Congress from both parties, and we now know it will be televised. A televised health care negotiation on Thursday, February 25th? <laughs> Must-see TV is back. It looks, it looks, folks, like the Republicans need another way to block Obama's block of their blocking of health care. And it is the subject of tonight's word. Political suicide. Folks, Obama has put Republicans in an uncomfortable position. He has invited them to his White House summit so he can hear their health care ideas, which they asked him for. And it's going to be televised, which they also asked him for. What next? Growing the mustache they asked him for? <laughs> and, and they have to go to the summit. Right, blonde-haired guy who is Steve Ducey? You don't want to see the president say, uh, and uh, welcome to the, the summit, it's bipartisan, can you guys zoom the camera out and look, these are the empty chairs where all the Republicans would have been sitting. Someone has to be there to present Republican ideas. But, and here's the worst case scenario. 
Obama takes some of their core ideas, blends them with some of the Democrats' core ideas, and through compromise gets something done, which would refute the Republicans' core idea. <laughs> that, that government can't get anything done. And Republicans were doing such a good job getting nothing done. With over 200 filibusters in the last three years, they've prevented more action than my college roommate, Eric. Dude, there was a coat hanger on the doorknob. We had a system. I mean, even being in Congress is a danger. Just by showing up to work, Republicans sometimes accidentally do things. Like December 15th, when Congress passed a resolution reaffirming the status of jazz as a national treasure. I am going to blame that one on Orrin Hatch. He is one hep cat. But, thankfully, thankfully, folks, the Republicans have found a way out of Obama's trap. By calling it a trap. Jim? He's setting a trap for the Republicans to go to a, this meeting on health care, even though he's shut them out for the entire year? Well, I think he hopes to set a trap. I don't want to walk into some, some trap. This is nothing more than a trap. It's a trap. Folks, Mitch McConnell is right. If Republicans, if Republicans show up at a summit, people are going to expect Republicans to present health care ideas. But if, if the public knows the meeting is a trap, then they're sitting at the conference table doing this. By the way, I'm churning butter. That makes Republicans look wise to Obama's game. You see, this is a great solution. The Republicans should take it further and give everything associated with legislating a name that makes it seem sinister. A committee meeting can be called a death panel. <laughs> Voting can be called genocide. Co-sponsoring legislation is, let's say, hot man on goat action. And... We can rename bipartisan compromise just what it would be for all the Republicans who have demonized Obama. Political suicide. And that's the word. We'll be right back. But don't play with me, cause you're playing with fire. Your mother, she's an heiress, owns a block in St. John's Wood. small picture, the father of the five-year-old denied reimbursement for life-saving anti-cancer drugs by his insurance company in a moment. First, the bigger picture in tonight's first quick comment. When C-SPAN's Brian Lamb said last month the network was ready to televise health care negotiations, House Minority Leader John Boehner wrote Lamb to say, House Republicans strongly endorse your proposal and stand ready to work with you to make it a reality. Then the president scheduled his health care summit for two weeks from today and invited the cameras. Now, Boehner says, I think that's fine, but you know, is this a political event or is this going to be a real conversation. When the Democrats decided not to televise the all-Democrat negotiations between senators and congressmen of their party, Senator John Kyle of Arizona exploded. There's no good reason to keep the negotiations of the health care bill secret, unless, of course, the president and congressional Democrats know that Americans wouldn't like what they see, and the only way they can get this bill is to write it in secret and pass it quickly. But now at the televised summit of reality, Kyle says, the truth of the matter is, a lot of things here are done by staff behind closed doors. And it's not always the wrong way to put something together. Sometimes Washington hypocrisy is difficult to see, and it requires careful parsing and heavy-handed conclusions by analysts like me. Not this time, huh? 
lot of people who in the final analysis don't really matter much were yelling about fictional death panels. What we did not hear was the relentless grinding work of the real death panels that actually already run our health care industry. This is a story of death panels in action. We told you on Tuesday about five-year-old Kyler Van Knocker. His father joins us presently. He's just filed a lawsuit detailing his son's encounter with real-life death panels. Kyler was born November 30th, 2004. He had almost three years as a typical kid until that day in June 2007 when his mother felt a lump in his jaw. Then came the bump on his head and then he couldn't walk. On July 11th, 2007, he was diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma, cancer. The two-year-old boy began chemotherapy. They harvested his stem cells. They used them later for bone marrow transplants. They cut them open to take out the primary tumor. They subjected him to radiation therapy. When he contracted veno-occlusive disease, they asked his insurance company, Health America, Division of Coventry, to cover a drug not approved by the FDA. Thumbs up from Health America Coventry on that. He spent summer of 2008 in intensive care. That August, they took out one of his kidneys. In October, they asked Health America Coventry to cover another drug not yet approved by the FDA and thumbs up again. The cancer in remission and Kyler went home. Last September it came back. This time doctors had only one course of treatment. IMIBG radiation therapy. $55,000 per session. This time Health America Coventry said no. Kyler is getting the treatments anyway but now the family's on the hook for $110,000 and counting. And the insurance company? Coventry CEO Alan Wise Tuesday telling analysts quote this company knows how to control costs and we will. The company reporting a loss ratio of 82 percent meaning 82 cents of every dollar they got from the Van Knocker family went to treatment and 18 cents went to things like Wise's 23 million dollar compensation. What is Washington doing about it? Congresswoman Michelle Bachman for one is playing games poorly writing that President Obama's health care sit-down must be a PR stunt. Why? Because an aide to Speaker Pelosi said he thinks Democrats will have to pass health care using reconciliation. Quoting Bachman, it looks like Democrats have already decided on a plan to pass their original legislation. A, they already did pass it. B, they passed two versions of it, in fact. And therefore, C, reconciliation would be used to change those original bills, which is D, a perfect opportunity for the Congresswoman to make changes. Thanks for playing. Then there is Republican Senator Judd Gregg telling Politico.com he is open to some steps on health care that could win some Republican support. Quoting Gregg, I am ready to sit down and try to be helpful. Now, as promised, we're joined by Paul Van Ocker and Attorney David Senoff. Gentlemen, we appreciate your time tonight. Uh, Paul, let me start by asking about, about Kyler. How is he and how is he responding to this treatment? Uh, he's doing wonderful. He has responded uh, very well to the treatment. We got great news last week. Um, He's being a typical little boy, happy to go to school and play with his friends. Amen. Uh, this insurance company, Health America Coventry, what was its reason that it gave you for not covering the cost of this? Uh, they've, they deem the ex uh, treatment to be experimental. Didn't they, didn't they, isn't it not in many respects the same kind of experimental, not FDA approved treatment that they approved previously that just happened to cost a little less? Uh, as far as we can tell, yes, sir. We've asked him about it and uh, didn't get much of a response. Uh, David, we read your complaint today. It sounds like they're, you know, to use this awful phrase, there literally are, in effect, death panels. Uh, complaint review committees that decided, uh, sorry, this five-year-old boy can't have the one drug that'll save his life. Can you explain how that worked? Sure, Keith. I mean, basically what happens was the doctor submitted a request for this treatment. It was reviewed by one physician at Coventry. They denied it. The Van Knockers appealed that denial. That appeal was denied again. They appealed it a second time. This time, Paul actually went to Health America, pled his case. Health America sent the file out to an independent outside reviewer. The committee heard from Kyler's doctor. They got a report back from their outside reviewer, and their outside reviewer actually said there was medical literature to support the use of this treatment for a patient like Kyler in Kyler's condition with his prognosis. The committee then denied it again, sent a letter to the Van Knockers saying, you know what, we've denied it again, and our decision this time is final, and the only thing you can do is file a lawsuit, and that's what we did. Paul, if you had any time during all this to follow this health care debate at all, what did you think when you heard the people who were criticizing the, the prospects of health care reform talk about these uh, the, the death panels? Did you, did you hear about that? What did you think if you did hear about it? Uh, honestly, sir, I'm not really political, if you will. Sure. Um, 
you know, I don't follow that. What I do follow is, you know, how things affect my son. Yep. And I'm not an activist. I'm an advocate for my child. We wanted us. We'd like to see this part of the healthcare debate move forward. This is something that can be addressed. This is something that uh, uh, we spoke to members of Congress, and honestly, we're not seeing a whole lot of action on it. Um, this is not about access to uh, health coverage. I work hard. I have uh, health coverage. Kyler actually has two health insurances covering them. This is about uh, insurance companies making decisions instead of the doctors. Well, you, you just nailed it and, and boiled it down to what's essential here. But I've got to ask you, the, the Philadelphia Daily News reported, Paul, that you're bankrupt. Um, is that correct, or is it close to being correct, or is it? I mean, what 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 does it do? What what does it mean in terms of Kyler's coverage going on? If this these insurance companies continue to have the attitude they've had in the last in the last few months on this case? Well, uh, what I can tell you is, anybody in our situation, Middle America, uh, we did all the right things. I yep. mean, we put we put money away. We have insurance, uh, you know, retirement funds, uh, college funds for the kids. Unfortunately, we start dealing with. Uh, these kind of medical expenses. Um, I don't know of too many middle American people that could survive it as far as a financial situation. Um, the bankrupt, sure, by uh, legal definitions, we are bankrupt, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, we're also very fortunate that we have, you know, in Philadelphia, two of the you know, absolutely amazing hospitals, St. Christopher's and Children's Hospital. Both of them are taking care of my son. Those doctors have moved forward because this is what needs to be done to save Kyler's life. Um, and they've, they've given us the opportunity to take care of a child, and let's worry about the money at the end. Let's take them to court, and let's uh, move forward. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestoftheleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. President Obama has invited Republican leaders of Congress to join him and Democrats at Blair House across the street from the White House here for a televised summit on health care reform. About time, an open, transparent, substantive conversation on one of the most pressing issues of our day, or to put it another way. The Republicans are smart enough to know this means a little bit of a trap. Walking into a potential trap. He hopes to set a trap. And of course, it's a trap. Yeah, a trap. Nothing more than a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> Senator Akbar is right. It's an ingenious trap. Asking Republicans to publicly state their beliefs on health care so that the president may respond. On camera. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, I, I know you may think that being asked to attend a conversation where you are given ample time to prepare is not generally considered a trap, which is why it's such a brilliant trap. <laughs> Minority leader John Boehner's got his eyes wide open. I want to have this bipartisan conversation, but I don't want to walk into uh, to some setup. I don't know who's going to be there. I don't know how big the room's going to be. I don't know how, uh, what the setup's going to be. I mean, uh, I don't know. Will there be music? Will I be sitting at the single person's table? Can I get a kosher meal or should I eat beforehand? I don't know. Hey, Boehner, suck it up, Grandma. I do expect to, to have some answers uh, before, before we go down there and, and walk into who knows what. Walk into who knows what? It is a public dialogue about important legislation, not Little Bighorn. <laughs> You're not hitting on Omaha Beach. You know what, fine. If it'll put you at ease, let's take a, a look at the room where the setup is. It, it's a pretty standard room. You can get a, go, no, no, oh my God, and Tigers, you're right. Oh my God, it's a trap. They're gonna have Tigers there. Gonna eat your bones. 
pussies. <laughs> you know, the only way... The only way this healthcare meeting is a trap is if Boehner's got nothing. It's like a, a paper bag is only a trap if you can't punch your way out of it. <laughs> but just because Republicans don't want to talk about health care with the president doesn't mean they don't want to talk about it. When John Oliver visited the RNC winter meeting in Hawaii, he found plenty of people eager to chat. He filed this report. Hawaii. Not only is it an island paradise, it's also been held up as a model for healthcare reform. Here, government mandates that businesses give health insurance to any employee working over 20 hours a week, resulting in near universal coverage, which made it the perfect place for the Republican National Committee to hold their annual meeting and deliver one key message. Healthcare reform isn't really a reform, it's a boondoggle. It would be one more step towards socialism. Do you think the American people should be thanking the Republican Party for destroying the health care bill? Absolutely, they should be thanking those that have stood up for the American people to stop this. But for some reason, Hawaiians didn't understand how bad their own system was. Healthcare is awesome, you know, especially with my baby. I'm in between jobs right now, and that they're taking on my health care free of charge till I get back on my feet, and that's awesome. Hawaii has awesome health care, right? You have health insurance. That's this right. guy has health insurance. The guy with a skateboard and without functioning shoelaces. Yep. How the f*** does that work out? Even visitors to the island were initially impressed. The treatment I received here uh, was the best that the world has to offer. Until a few days later when they realised they'd been tricked into receiving socialised care. You know what I wanted to say at the press conference? I wanted to say, I'm just glad this happened before 2013 and Obama's health care went into effect because I might not have survived it. Luckily, Republicans were here to save Hawaiians from themselves. What would you say to Hawaiians who say, I have government-mandated health care and I love it? Do they have government-mandated health care here? <laughs> yes. Well, I would say that... Uh, he who pays the piper calls a tune. Right, and wh what would you say to a wine who said, what? That's meaningless, that's just a bit of folksy nonsense that doesn't have any real substance. <clears throat> I lost my thought. It's just not going to work, and right. it will destroy the healthcare system. What would you say to a Hawaiian who said, you literally don't know what you're talking about? Well, I would say that I do, and I would hope that you would give me a chance to show you there is a better way. What if that Hawaiian then said, okay, you've got that chance, dazzle me? There are some people that may may believe that government-run health care is okay because they've not had the opportunity of seeing uh, how it works on the private side. Even Hawaiians who make frequent visits to the emergency room somehow didn't see it. So I have been in an arrest and happened to get some stitches. I go into Hawaii and they say, get the gurney, get him fixed, dog, you okay? And the doctor starts working. I go to the mainland, they say, you got insurance. Right. Is your wallet on you? Right. It's not my wallet that hurts, it's my lip. Let me get this right. Dog the bounty hunter believes in Hawaiian health care. Dog the bounty hunter believes in Hawaiian health care, correct. These poor bastards just didn't realize they were living in a socialist nightmare, forced to scrounge for a living, unable even to afford shirts, many driven to suicide. But for those who do survive, what will their world look like? Let's look down the road, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, your children, your grandchildren, You're gonna regret how it. are they going to pay You're for this? You're going to regret it. Well, we've done it for 40 years. This isn't something we just started in the last few months or past few years. Exactly. With only four decades of testing, America simply cannot afford to join this dangerous experiment. What would happen, do you think, if this healthcare system made it to the mainland? That question I couldn't answer. I'll tell you what the answer is. What is the answer? Every single person in the United States would, would, be, de would be dead. Thank goodness we have experts like these to save us. I don't know about Hawaii. I haven't, I mean, I've been here before once, but I don't know how that has worked. What I do know is as a universal rule, it simply does not work. <laughs> Thank you.
about to answer whether uh, these mainstream media guys, the ones on Scarborough show, are, don't have any idea how the process works or if they're purposely misleading you. It appears to be the latter uh, because, as you're about to see from this clip, Scarborough knows exactly what's going on with reconciliation and exactly what uh, Obama should do. And ironically, it turns out he agrees with us. Now, there's going to be a lot of nonsensical points in between, but let's listen to this, and you see that they know what the real deal is. Clip number three. There's another side of it. That's the angel on my shoulder. The little devil on the other shoulder says, screw it. We're going to reconciliation, and we will let the Republicans try to fight us on that and try, try to explain why we have to get 60 votes to pass anything here. And if they want to have an election in 2010 on Senate rules, let them fight that rule. We'll talk about how we delivered health care. It's not, it's not clear they have the votes to do that, number one. To get 51. It's not clear to me. Really? I, I mean, I think they're in the ballpark right now, but you still have to get the House Democrats to agree to do it. Given where they are, I, st I think that probably is the smartest thing for them to do. I think and I say really. that reluctantly, but I think, I think right now the die is too far cast that way. I think they should try for it, but apparently they don't think they have it or they'd be doing John it. John Hyland, if I were president of the United States, I would never do that because that will blow up bridges that can't be rebuilt. However, if I were the president's political advisor and I was just worried about Barack Obama's political health and the Democrats' political health, I would say, you've got no choice. You've got to do reconciliation. Well, Get I, your 51 votes and run. I, I think it's very hard to imagine. Rahm Emanuel is a tough guy. A lot of these guys in the White House are tough guys. The, the only reason that I can see that they're not pursuing that strategy so far is that they're worried that they don't have the votes and that if they actually had it on the table, that there would be a lot of Democrats who would panic and say, we don't, we don't want to be perceived as having as owning this vote. We don't want to be perceived as having ramrodded this thing through. There will be a political cost for us that's just too great. I think that there's no principled reason why the White House wouldn't want to do that. They, I think they probably don't want to do it because they fear it wouldn't work. The and you would see Democrats abandoning ship all over the place the if they were actually faced that choice. The White House, yeah. let me tell you what Americans like. They like winners. Reagan firing all the air traffic controllers, showing force. Bill Clinton ramrodding through the biggest tax increase in American history. Bill Clinton ramrodding through NAFTA when it was very unpopular. Okay? He won, he won, he won. It wasn't until he balked on health care that he got booted out. You know what? If I can get 51 votes from Democrats, and I'm just saying as a political strategist, I'd never do it as a president. I get the 51 votes, I win, and I move on to the next. Okay, so you totally get it. So Scarborough's exactly right there. Of course you would. Now, why shouldn't you do it? His point in the middle was, oh, you'll blow up bridges, and maybe those bridges can't be repaired. I mean, it reminds me of my, uh, the great piece of advice I got from an old-school talk show host when I was first getting into this business. And I was asking him, hey, uh, should I uh, hound the program directors to try to get on air? If I do, I might burn some bridges because I'm too insistent, and, you know, that, that could be perceived as annoying. And he pulls me aside. He's a, you know, a, an older gentleman who does a very genteel show. And he says, kid, what fucking bridges do you have? <laughs> okay, and that's totally true right now. Kid, oh, I'm President Obama. What bridges do you have? They keep giving you zero votes on everything. <laughs> Since you don't have any bridges, whatever is left standing of the bridge, I'd napalm it. <laughs> I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Okay, no, there ain't no bridges, man. What? Scarborough pretends in the middle there as if the Republicans would play ball if Obama was nice enough to him. Now, he's savvy enough to know that ain't true. That ain't even close to true. And when you turn to the authors, Halpern and Hallman, they say, uh, well, look, you know what? Uh, you, you don't want to be seen as ramrodding this through. You know, these guys are tough guys like Rahm Emanuel. You're right, right, right. They're real tough. I know. Their idea of toughness is you always cave to the right wing side. And that's why these uh, mainstream guys love them, right? Uh, but you can't be seen as ramrodding this through. The American people will not be happy with it. What are you talking about? You think the American people know what reconciliation is? And, oh, you use a, a, you know, a legislative maneuver that they don't like? Was there an uproar after Bush used reconciliation to pass the huge tax cuts? I don't remember a peep, an uproar. <laughs> there wasn't a word about it, right? Nobody knows that. Scarborough is ultimately right about the general point, which is you get the job done, okay? You don't worry about, oh, my God, I'm at this procedure, and am I doing it right or am I not doing it right? Now, the one good point that Halpern and Heilman made is 
you know what? The Democrats just not, might not want to do it. Now, they didn't say it, but the, to fill in the other half of that sentence, it's because they get the same corporate money as the Republicans do, the guys that are so-called in the middle, the Evan Buys, the Ben Nelsons, the Mary Landrews, et cetera. And they love taking that corporate money. And a lot of them, now, Nelson, et cetera, are saying, we're not going to vote for it anyway, if you put it through reconciliation. The problem is the people who say that they would have voted for it, oh, look, oh, what can we do? There's a filibuster. If there wasn't filibuster and we needed 51 votes, of course I'd be on your side. They're not really on your side. And that's why they don't want to go in that direction, because then they're put on the spot. Which way are you going to vote? Are you going to vote with the American people? Are you going to vote for real reform? Or are you going to vote with the lobbyists? Of course, they want to vote with the lobbyists. So they don't want to be put on the spot. That's why they're not using reconciliation. Because they don't want to be in a spot where they actually can win on 51 votes. All they want is more and more excuses for losing, because they don't actually want to do it. Now, how do you cure that problem? You need a president with balls. Someone to come out and say, hey, you know what? Evan Bayh, Ben Nelson, etc., here's how much corporate money they took, and here's why they're voting that way. Okay, now, Ben, I'm going to come to Nebraska, and I'm going to guarantee you a loss. Because I'm going to make sure the Democrats don't show up, the Republicans will show up, and they'll take your seat. But the thing is, I don't really need your vote. Because I'm going to go through reconciliation, I only need 51 votes. Now, you've got to make a decision, Ben. What's it going to be? A guaranteed loss? Or you take the chance of siding with the president, you vote my way, and then I come out and support you, and we do everything possible to get you that victory in Nebraska. What's it going to be? See, but we don't have a president like that. We have a president who says, oh, well, how can I get you the lobbies? But I don't, I don't want to endanger you. I don't want to you. I ain't going to get the job done, man. Until he takes out that stick, we're going to lose on all these. Because those guys in the so-called middle, those corporatist Democrats, have no interest in voting for real reform, and they never have. Do you know that right now, if they go through, go through reconciliation, they're not even going to include the public option? Okay, so even if they went through reconciliation, the bill's going to be insanely weak. And even for that, they don't want to vote. Well, then what do you have to lose? Kid, what fucking bridges do you have? Thanks for listening, everyone. I, I just wanted to speak real quickly on the importance of today. Today is uh, it's Tuesday, February 16th, 2010. And I, so I'm sitting here. It's about 8 o'clock at night as I'm talking to you. And now I'm sitting here at the end of the day getting ready to, to put the final touches on this show and put it out after having worked a full eight-hour shift the very last full eight-hour shift of my regular, quote-unquote, real job. Going to the office at 9.30, working for eight hours, sitting at a desk, working at a computer. Uh, it just so happens I was making a video today. That was my, my final task. And then having to, you know, after working a full day, come home and work on the podcast. Now, this is the sort of schedule that I've had on such a regular basis for such a long time where, you know, I've had a couple of days a week where I've been able to do podcasting, uh, you know, two or three days a week that I've had to go into the office. But during those two or three days, I've almost always had to come home and do some amount of podcasting work, which has, you know, led me into the schedule of regularly working 12 or 13 hours in any given day uh, of the week. So I'm sitting here on the very last day of its kind, the very last day that I would have to work these two totally separate, disconnected shifts that combine to, you know, a, a way more than what is healthy work schedule. And I have only one thing to say about it, and that is thank you so much for how you have supported the show in whatever way you have done it, whether you've donated or, or signed up to donate on an ongoing basis as a member or if you've told friends about it so that they have, you know, subscribed to the show and helped spread the word themselves, or maybe they've donated, or however, and, and frankly, just listening yourself, just enjoying the show and, you know, appreciating it and subscribing and listening and, uh, you know, allowing me to attract advertisers to the show. And, you know, don't, don't get the impression I'm getting rich or anything. The, the members are supporting the show 
only about 10 times as much as any advertising revenue that's coming in right now. But every little bit helps, you know, every little tiny revenue stream, you know, just people going to the website to use the little Amazon box. I mean, everything is helping. And so you put it all together and it puts me in a position of finally that I can do what I love and have a regular work schedule. I, you know, I'm going to put in the, the 40 or it's going to be more than 40, but I, I like to imagine that I can limit myself to doing just eight hours a day and then actually have weekends free. Miraculously, I'll have weekends free. And it's all because of you guys. And so I just have more so on this particular day than on every other day when I have the same feeling, but more so today that I, I feel like I want to get it out, that I just want to thank you guys because as I can't say enough, I just couldn't do this without you. So I, I, I get the notes of, of encouragement. People send emails or leave comments on Podcast Alley or in iTunes, and they say how much they appreciate the show. And some people go as far as to say, you know, it's, it's part of my routine. I just couldn't imagine, you know, going for my run without it, or I couldn't imagine uh, how uninformed I would be without the show. And uh, so I, I love that I can provide this service. And I can do it because you guys are supporting me. And so it's just this beautiful symbiotic relationship that uh, I hope we can keep going for years and years. So I just want to quickly thank two specific members on top of that, that general outpouring of uh, love and affection for all of you generally. Uh, I want to thank today Pablo B., who signed up uh, back on November 8th. And then, uh, and then real recently, Wayne B. signed up on February 2nd, and, and Wayne went ahead and signed up uh, above and beyond the minimum donation amount and, and went ahead and, and uh, purchased his membership for the, the entire year in advance. So, you know, huge thanks to both of those members and, and all the members who have signed up. From day one, this has been a listener-supported podcast. I, I thought of it as a listener-supported podcast before I ever had listeners. I really did. I, you know, in, in the past, I've even replayed the very first episode I did. And the very first episode wasn't even a, an, an episode. It, it didn't have clips from other shows. I just talked for a couple of minutes about my vision for the show. And, and my vision was to put together you know, basically what you hear now. Uh, it was the same, same idea back then. And, and what I said was, look, this sounds crazy, doesn't it? Like, there's no way one person could do all this work to put together a show and still like have any kind of a life. There's no way one person could do this. So I'm going to be dependent on you guys to help fill in the gaps. Anything I can't do on my own. Yeah. I, I hope the show is going to be good enough that you're going to want to help out. As I've mentioned as, as kind of a thank you to you guys. And just as part of, you know, what, what I feel is right. Um, you know, to, to thank you guys for sticking with the show and helping to support it and, and in the hopes that you will feel uh, more encouraged to support the show in the future beginning in March. The show will go from eight episodes a month to ten. So I will be ramping up to do that in March. In the meantime, I'm going to be moving myself, actually. You know, this whole transformation is, is a completely life-upending event for me. So I'm really excited about the future of the show, of my own life and, and th things that are going on. So, and you know, more details will, will be forthcoming about that. And, you know, because now that the show is what I do, you know, when I move, I just bring you guys with me. So any adventures I go on, I'll be bringing you right along. So that's going to be it for today. And I'll, I'll give you a break today on all the details about how to support the show. Just if you're interested, check out the website, bestoftheleft.com and see the support box right on the side of the website. Those are all the ways that you can support the show if you're interested. If you haven't subscribed already, you know, you've heard the show, but you're not tuned in to get every new episode, check out the subscribe box. We have an obscene number of ways to subscribe to the show. So right on the right side of the website, there's a box that, that says subscribe. There's a few options there and then more options beyond that. Click the link. We've got like eight different ways to subscribe to the show. I mean, can you even imagine that there were eight? Um, so one of them is definitely going to work for you. Check that out. Spread the word to your friends. Any way that they want to get the show, we make it available to them. And now finally, uh, links to all the music and the sources used in the show are in the show notes on the blog. So any of the music you heard, any of the uh, clips you heard, 
details on that in the show notes. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, soon to be 10 times a month, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took a part of picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor will take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fun farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fun farewell to a friend Hi, my name is Mike. Can I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening, do those free things that Jay asks you to do, and then subscribe when you can. Thanks.